Okay, everyone, welcome to the first Euro 2020 Sports Podcast of Ideas. I'm Jeff Kidder, Membership and Events Director at the Academy of Ideas, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Rob Lyons and Alistair Donald, and also uh, our special guest today, we're very glad to have with us, is author George Harrison. So we're just going to have a wide-ranging discussion about the lead-up to Euro 2020, which begins this Friday, um, and uh, see where it takes us. There's plenty of things in the news. There's plenty of events around the sport which have been politicised and politicians getting involved now discussing them. Uh, and we'll get on to that in a few minutes. But first of all, do, do people have general observations about Euro 2020? The fact that it's called Euro 2020 and we're now in June 2021, so it's a year late. The COVID restrictions, the fact that it's taking place in 11 countries, uh, what what are your initial observations about the whole thing, Rob? Well, I, obviously, it's going to be a slightly mad tournament, given all the, everything else that's going on in terms of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the crowds aren't going to be as big. And um, also, so it's, it's not probably the best time to experiment with the format, unfortunately, in terms of, of playing it right across Europe. Um, it's, so it's just striking, you know, that Scotland starting Baku, which is a that I mean, it's barely in Europe, and it's scattered all over the place. So it's that, that's that's. It'll be interesting to see how it worked out. But it would have been much better if this uh, change in format had occurred in more normal times, because um, it could be a rip roaring success or it could be um, a real damp squib. Who knows? It's been a slightly odd season as well um, in terms of uh, the game in general. Um, certainly, in terms of the Premier League, it's it's it's, it's been a, a season of two halves in, in many ways. So, who knows what's going to happen, really? Um, but hopefully, at least all the games will get played at the time they're supposed to get played, and that um, we we do get our usual general feast of football. Alistair. Yeah, well, I suppose we should be glad that there's a tournament taking place at all. I mean, it looks like the Olympics are, you know, daily we hear news that they're under threat. So I think hopefully the tournament uh, going ahead will be some sort of boost for sport and, and for uh, social life more generally, even to the extent that it will be we be very limited. Personally, um, and I suppose I could be accused of being a dyed-in-the-wool traditionalist here, but I'm not a fan of this new format. I never was. Uh, I, I think it uh, decimates quite a lot of things that are good about uh, tournaments like the Euros and, and, and the World Cup, having it in one country and all that that goes with that from the kind of banal stuff like uh, mascots and, and the kind of identity of the whole tournament through to the good stuff about fans being able to gather in one country and have a, a, a big party. So I'm really not a fan of this, this style of tournament where it's spread uh, across all the different countries. I mean, it's only a month ago that we were congratulating UEFA on, on uh, defending us from, from um, the European Super League. But this is a, re is a reminder, I think, of UEFA's uh, meddling and interventions to try and create a, a, a tournament that really suits them rather than suits the supporters. And, and I think that's a real loss. That said, though, I'm really pleased that, that it's coming up and going ahead and hopefully it's a bit of a feast of football. Georgia. Yeah, I think, I think the others are right to raise questions about the format of the tournament and whether this year in the middle of a pandemic is the right year to do this kind of um, jet-setting, globe-trotting version of the Euros. I mean, I may be, this may be a biased England fan speaking, but it seems to me like it would have made more sense to host the tournament in one country 
which had all the infrastructure ready to go, such as England, um, it would have been a natural a natural switch. But we're also going to get an interesting dynamic, obviously, because um, with the thanks to the delay to the Euros, the World Cup is now uh, that much closer to the Euros. So it's almost going to be like there's going to be two bites of the cherry in terms of major international tournaments. So that is going to have a knock-on effect, obviously, at the next World Cup. But um, yeah, it's hard not to be excited by it. The Euros are still the Euros, no matter what strange things are going on in the background. Um, and I think there's plenty to be optimistic about for fans of the well, England and Scotland, certainly. I think it's very it's, it's interesting, actually, the difference in attitudes to this tournament compared to previous tournaments. I mean, if you cast your mind back to 1986 in Mexico, there was a huge earthquake uh, just before that Mexico World Cup. And yet the sentiment was very much, we must make this tournament go ahead at all costs. Um, it was almost like the tournament was was there as, as, as a kind of kickstart of social life again. And I mean, you, you know, there are obviously are differences between the devastation caused by an earthquake and the type of uh, situation created by a pandemic. But I just wish that uh, those in, in the authorities and, and, and politicians uh, more generally could be a bit more enthusiastic about the whole thing. The whole th- Every time I open a newspaper, there seems to be a kind of underlying anxiety and, and messages of doom uh, seem to dominate as opposed to a kind of genuine enthusiasm for the whole thing, which I think everybody's very nervous about football fans gathering together I mean not really in the stadiums because there's very few people meant to be in the stadiums but in pubs and fan zones and and all the rest of it there seems to be a distinct nervousness about the whole thing. I think that what Alistair says there actually partially reflects a longer term trend as well of um, scepticism and distrust towards football fans in general I mean at the best of times football fans aren't treated brilliantly by the political um, establishment and I think the detachment of political elites from average football fans has only sort of been exacerbated and shown um, in a greater light by the circumstances surrounding this tournament. So it's, it's an interesting point, and it speaks, I think, to a broader underlying trend, which has been an issue for a long time now, which is that football fans are viewed primarily with distrust and suspicion by people who don't really understand us and what motivates us. I, I think on the footballing level, the, the, the changes Alistair's described... In the past, you had the host nation who thought they had an advantage because they're at home. And now you have a situation where England and Scotland probably think they've got an advantage because they're playing quite a few games at home, whereas Wales are off to Baku and and, and other countries going off around the country. And also within the tournament, a number of the host countries have got, as I understand it, and, and it may change. We know the COVID regulations are about to change in England, but... I understand some countries like Hungary will have large crowds, almost capacity crowds, all getting towards that, and other countries will have small, much, much smaller crowds. And as we will probably get on to, in Scotland, there's all kinds of regulations for the fans in the fan zones, let alone once they get into the ground. So there's a whole differential way this is going to play itself out, which are just unknown factors in uh, such a major tournament. And the whole bubble situation... Um, you know, how, how is that going to affect different teams? I mean, in cricket, it's affected different teams differentially and not necessarily what you might expect. So we've all got all that to look forward to. I mean, if we look at some of the some of the issues, the, 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 the lead up in England has been dominated by issues around the crowds taking the knee, the, you know, the, 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 the way the team has responded to things the way the crowd has responded to things, now the way politicians have responded to it. 
There's obviously the COVID regulations, which are very much dominating in, in the UK and around Europe. And I mean, we just had the Champions League final a couple of weeks ago in Portugal. And now Portugal is not somewhere recommended for English and broader UK tourists to visit. So all these things are chopping and changing all the time. So what do people think is going on there? Why is something like taking the knee, which has been rumbling on for a year as as a form of protest in the UK in the wake of George Floyd, how has this become the sort of defining feature in the lead up to, to Euro 2020? Well, it's interesting that point about the crowds coming back because that's what sparked the, the latest controversies around taking the knee is that, um, is that England fans booing taking the knee the other night. And the reaction from the Gary Linekers of this world and whatever has been, well, this is racism, rather than crowds coming back and being able to respond to what they see as, well, some people probably see as politics being rammed down their throats and the, a certain sort of ritualistic quality that's that's uh, become uh, the hallmark of taking the knee. So whatever the um, individual motivations of the players, which I'm sure are um, in, entirely uh, well-meaning, the reality is that this this thing has has been has been going on probably for far too long. I mean, Wilfred Sahar was talking about this back in February, how it had been going on to, for far too long, um, and uh, wasn't going to change anything. And it's also, who is this being directed against? You know, is it being... It, I can understand why a lot of fans would feel like it's being directed at them. Can you stop being racist? Um, and I'm sure that, you know, for all the, for all the attacks on individual uh, black players and on former black players that have been happening on social media, and that is a, um, a concern, obviously, it feels like maybe this is being directed at fans and fans are for the for the vast majority of fans have got no racist inclinations whatsoever so it just feel like it's it's us against them in the way it's been promoted yeah a strange thing about taking the knee as well it, it it's bizarre to me that it's become such a popular form of protest in the UK when obviously it started in America where there's far greater significance to it so i mean the original knee taking was done during the national anthem at uh, domestic uh foot, american football games and it was then became a protest against the anthem and against the nation of America. The fact that we don't play the national anthem at domestic football games in the UK renders the whole kneeling gesture a little bit hollow. And, and it kind of takes away the impetus of why it was actually being done in the first place. So I'm not sure it's wise necessarily to import grievances from America when they don't necessarily overlay with grievances that people may have in the UK. There obviously are issues of racism in football and in wider society. But kneeling is a very American protest, and it's bizarre that it's taken off in such a way globally. Obviously, it's a testament to America's cultural influence. And it feels like this, that the booing to the, the booing obviously represents um, the fans being tired of being lectured to by politicians or feeling as if politics has been rammed down their throats, as, as Rob says. Um, and this seems to me like it would be a really good time to just end the politicization of sport, kind of kick politics out of football, stop with the poppy wearing the kneeling and all of that and reduce sport back to what it should be at its essence, which is just sport. I mean, I, I agree that the fans coming back seems to be the, the trigger for this being back in the news again. I mean, the, the, the way it was introduced to me smacks of a uh, uh, similar situation in a number of ways that during this uh, pandemic, things have come in 
and the absence of a, a kind of vibrant uh, social sphere, if you like, has, has left a gap, which uh, all sorts of people in authority using all sorts of new regulations uh, have, have filled up and, and managed to establish these things uh, without anybody to protest against them. And the fans coming back, uh, having been on the end of being effectively lectured, I think, uh, about this stuff for the past year, um, primarily because uh, Sky Sports uh, you know, makes such a feature of it. And that's really been the only way that football has been accessible over the past 15 months is, is, is through the television. So I think people are just a bit uh, kind of sick, fed up of it. The, the authorities have taken advantage of it because uh, they see it as their mission to uh, is establish these things. They're backed up by uh, a set of people in the media who buy into these things and constantly promote it and I think uh, the interesting thing over the past uh, uh, the, the, this latest bout of, of reaction to it has been the reaction from people within the media where it's no longer a choice even to accept these things, I mean it's become an orthodoxy and, and anybody who dares raise uh, any sort of criticism is, is just lambasted and condemned which I think is a dangerous uh, state of affairs and then the other quite interesting thing I think and it's a bit difficult to know where this this is going but is is the the football players themselves seem to have become much more on board in this and I take Rob's point about um uh, you know maybe perhaps they, they've many have no doubt got uh, good interests at, at heart but it does seem to me that this it, it starting to remind me a little bit of of the way that uh, celebrity culture works and the way that the film industry works and the oscars work where this has become a, a kind of stage for for broadcasting your views and football players do in 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 recent years seem to have become slightly more divorced from from the normal fan i mean you only got to think back um I mean, the most famous example is, is I suppose, uh, the Lisbon Lions and, and Celtics European Cup winning team from the late 60s. They were all born within 10 miles, or most of them were born within 10 miles of Celtic Park. And there was a kind of commonality between the guy that stood on the terrace and the, and the bloke that played on, on, on the field. And for whatever reasons, and some of them very good reasons, that started to, uh, that, that there's a gap opened up in, 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 in recent years. But it now does seem in the way that uh, some players operate with their kind of trendy campaigns uh, that tick lots of boxes that there's a division opened up between the actual player and the fan and which is is you know I, I kind of think an interesting development because football always um, uh, during my lifetime was was that sport where as a, as a kind of normal bloke you genuinely had a chance of making it it did seem something within your reach whereas it seems slightly more distant these days you just reminded me of um, Tony Evans the sports writer wrote a book about Liverpool's 83-84 season when they won uh, three trophies and the, one of the things that he, he talks about in the book is the fact that the players once they finished training there was nothing to do there was nothing on TV, you didn't have Netflix or anything like that. So they all just went to the pub. And so they interacted with ordinary fans all the time because they were in the pub with them. Now they just go back to their private residence in Cheshire and they're not, they don't really see, you know, the people who were supporting them anymore. Including famously in that season, I think their players went to the pub before the final game of the season because the league was wrapped up and they had uh, quite a few jars and the game was played out as a dull nil-nil draw because they'd all been in the pub beforehand. Um, I mean, I, I, I've 
and so he went out to Mexico uh, in, in in 1986, and and it was you know the, the stories from that tournament are are, are kind of stuff a legend. But part of it was actually being out drinking with the players uh, during the tournament because that sort of interaction uh, was still possible in those days. So it's you know changed times, and no doubt for, uh, football's improved in some ways because of some of those changes. But this is not to romanticise the past, but it's just a kind of reflection on the way that things do seem to have slightly changed. I think the game has been sanitised quite a lot as well. Obviously, in the past number of decades, um, the way that you talk about players drinking and going out and having a good time. I mean, clubs aren't even allowed to have um, alcohol brands sponsoring them anymore on shirts and things like that. So. The game has obviously become fairly uh, puritanical and it and I think in that process that is part of why it has become detached from the people who support it who are still broadly working class uh, traditional fans. I thought well I'll see what all the fuss is about. I listened to Gareth Southgate at the weekend give his explanation of why the players would take the knee and I have to say I found his explanation fairly excruciating and it was like, I just thought it was like a bad Sunday school teacher trying to, to kind of, you know, explain their sort of, their worldview. It was slightly embarrassing, really. And then I listened to a Radio 5 discussion on the whole thing. And the extraordinary thing was that the series of journalists all eulogising Gareth Southgate, saying the most amazing guy, brilliant, managed to work with this, you know, very difficult, uh, diverse uh, team uh, team squad he'd done all these things he was an amazing guy and the next person to come in and say no he's even more amazing than that he's just incredible and there was a whole series of journalists each more eulogising Southgate than the next one and then I read an article yesterday explaining how Southgate's brought these jur- the journalists who often felt they're out in the cold in the past with England brought them in and they've just become totally attached to the whole thing in this symbiotic relationship. And there was no sense of, if I talk to friends or people I know about Gareth Southgate, some people like him. Some people think, as I do, that he's well-meaning, but probably not up to the job. Other people don't like him. People got whole diverse views. You talk to these journalists and every journalist almost, I'm sure there's a few exceptions, thinks he's absolutely amazing and has no sense that maybe some criticism maybe there's a different point of view there just seems to be nothing everybody's just in this bubble with him and then all the stuff about the knee and all the rest of it the moral stuff's thrown in as part of what you get one day I assume the bubble will burst and everybody will wonder what on earth they were doing but that but there we go and then the other point I just wanted to make was in relation to the Distinction. Interesting point. Obviously, the distinction between the f- players being very removed from the fans, which is true. And the thing that strikes me, which is that the real weakness of Southgate to me, is that somebody like Marcelo Bielsa, the Leeds manager, he does this thing regularly, which I thought was a bit naff originally, but now I don't, where he gives all the players at Leeds big bin bags, tells them to go around Leeds, pick up rubbish, litter, all this stuff bring it back and then says, this is what the people of Leeds do to earn money to watch you play. And it's basically a way of keeping them grounded and showing, telling them that they're young, very privileged people and that they don't forget it. And they don't forget that there's people out there who do a lot of hard graft to have the privilege to watch them play football and that they should do that. 
And Southgate seems to have done the opposite of that, which is basically taken this very privileged group of young people, as has been described, who are obviously very good at football, and then flattered them, flattered them some more, and then flattered them again and told them that whatever they think is absolutely amazing, whether it's about you know their, 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 their un, underformed political ideas or whatever, and told them they're, yeah. So, and just, so you have this gro- grotesque spectacle now where they've now turned on their own fans without re- sort of fully realizing what's going on. But there's this kind of process has happened. And t- to me on a football level, just to say finally on this, if you're Steve Clark, the shrewd Scottish manager, you'll look at England and say, "Look at them! You know, they're, they're, they're spooked by their own fans. You know, what are they? What are they like?" You'll think they're a bit soft. I would have thought. I don't know. You would have thought that the more sus teams, more sus managers will say, "What is there's something up with England? They're not as robust as they think they are." But we'll see. Hopefully, that's not the case. We'll see what happens. But you just see that the process has occurred where they've been overflattered many times. And we've ended up with this distinct situation where there's just a chasm between, not all the fans, but the chasm between the players, the media, the England setup, and many of their fans, possibly the majority of their fans. Another strange thing about this as well is the pretense that everyone has that this is some kind of radical protest, that by kneeling, players um, and managers are doing something to kind of upset the system and... And, and cause trouble. I mean, if a protest is sanctioned by all of the politicians in your country, by the sporting bodies, when even the referees are blowing their whistles at the start of the game and then dropping to the knee themselves, to me, that kind of takes away some of the um, the pretense that this is something radical that they're not supposed to be doing. I mean, I cringe every time I see a referee blow his whistle and then kneel and then kneel down. And to me, it's, it, it's, it's, I understand exactly what you're saying about Southgate being kind of treated as almost saintly figure. People like him just because he wears a funny waistcoat and got a lucky draw at the World Cup. Um, nobody's <laughs> talking about his. Nobody's talking about his qualities as a manager in the media. Whereas among fans, that's what people are talking about. But it's just baffling the idea that he's some kind of like revolutionary, uh, radical figure when actually he, he's exactly the kind of person. You know, he's so tame. He's such a sort of like village church kind of character he's not some he's not some revolutionary whereas Bielsa there's a man who you often hear stories about him popping into the local Lidl in Leeds wearing his tracksuit I mean there's a man of the people right there uh there's an interesting comparison the two couldn't be further apart really uh, just uh, yeah the thing that struck me about um Southgate in his comments I was reminded of that old phrase Church of England is the conservative party at prayer and now it seems like official football is like new labor at play it's just it's just cringingly just right on and as George says you're not you know you end up with this kind of like vicar figure as your leader rather than somebody who's got some who's going to go out and you know drive the drive the the masses forwards. Mind you, Rob, if we win the Euros, I will not be criticising Southgate anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forgive him. I'll forgive him everything if it if it does come home. Yeah. <laughs> Alistair, Alistair, do you want to say anything before we move on to the football side? There's some fun and games in Scotland where fans are not allowed to have bagpipes and this, that and the other. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, tragically, I can't take my bagpipes into the fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, a serious uh, backward step. Um, I, I mean, just to come back to what Jeff said about whether Scotland uh, mimic England in terms of taking the knee, I don't think it's quite as clear cut as they'll just reject it. In fact, the, the discussion yesterday was uh, whether they uh, show some sort of solidarity, a decision to be taken, uh, apparently. So hope, hopefully they don't go, go down that route. Um, but yeah, Scotland, I mean, it, I, I've been up here for uh, best part of a couple of weeks now and obviously there's kind of enthusiasm and and uh it's not quite uh the 1978 argentina pitch of things yet but uh you know people are really looking forward to it and i think scotland are uh, certainly a better team now than than they've been for for some number of years and steve clark is is i think a very good manager he's got a lot of good experience and uh he's molded a team to take advantage of some of the best attributes that the player of the players that he's got unfortunately the the other the flip side of things of the way that uh, uh the the whole um the, the tournament has been managed up here is and and the way that the politicians are intervening is is the exact opposite of the 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 good stuff that the Scotland team are doing it's it's actually I mean fairly appalling really um so we've mentioned the the fan zone in Glasgow which um is not 100% certain that it'll go ahead yet I I, I don't think but this is a, a central Glasgow a, a fan zone where 3,000 3, people will be let in in the afternoon and then another 3,000 people in the evening so we're not talking huge numbers here but wherever but but whenever it's mentioned uh barrages of politicians and public health advisors and academics are coming out expressing uh, their concerns that this thing should be allowed to go ahead and there's all sorts of new rules being dreamt up from the playlist uh, for any music that's got to be approved within the zone is is be approved uh, so that there's no uh, records that might make people jump around or, or uh, want to, uh, you know, uh, take advantage of a, of a kind of alcohol-fueled uh, atmosphere of camaraderie and and uh, to get enthusiastic about the football. There's, uh, they, they literally are uh, banning bagpipes from coming in or indeed any in instrument or, or anything that makes a noise, I think, is, is, is to be banned as well so it's it's um it's a bit tragic really but you know scotland is the country that uh, introduced um uh, almost a decade ago the offensive behavior football fans uh, act which uh was a pioneering act which uh, sought to mold how football fans behaved uh, not only in grounds but in the area of grounds as well so perhaps it's no surprise that it's scotland that has gone furthest in these or appears to have gone furthest in these measures that uh, uh, where uh, the police and, and politicians seek to shape uh, football fans' behaviour. Just to add to that, um, there's, there's the wider cynicism about the Scottish government's attitude to things. So they're um, reporting Scotland, the local news here, was was talking to people in Glasgow, and Glasgow's pubs have literally only just like, reopened again after eight months. And the, the publicans, you can see, are just like terrified that this fan zone will create just enough of an uptick in cases for the Scottish government to close the pubs again. Lots of other people are worried about what might happen with the fan zone. And if it wasn't that attitude of shut things down at the first sign of an uptick in, in, in cases, I think people will be a lot more relaxed about it. But given the Scottish government's record on this sort of stuff, I think people are scared that, that what will happen ultimately despite all the restrictions whatever is that if there's an uptick in cases it will be blamed on the fan zone and then 
um, the, the world will have a step backwards in Glasgow after such a long time uh, being under really very heavy restrictions. There are, there are UK-wide problems as well with the effect of COVID restrictions on fans. I mean, obviously, we all know about the restrictions on fans at the grounds, not being able to get in perhaps at all or certainly in large numbers. But if you're trying to watch the Euros games at a pub in, in anywhere in the UK, you're meant to obviously book a table because you're not allowed to currently drink standing up in Britain because obviously that's going to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, so, you know, in the past, every major tournament, I've enjoyed watching England games standing in crammed pubs, standing up, having a drink where you can barely move for people. This year, there is going to be none of that, um, not certainly until restrictions on social distancing are lifted. So they've kind of sucked almost all the spontaneity and all of the joy out of being a football fan. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're at the ground if you're at the pub, it's just not going to be quite the same. Probably enough of the politics. Uh, in fact, in some, many of us probably wish there was, le- there was less of it in the, in the Euros. So what about the football? So what do we think about the home nations? What chance have they got? And, and any other nations we like? And also, as a Bristol City fan, I know we've got uh, one player in the Czech Republic, so you have to keep an eye on that. George has got his Norwich City kit on today. <laughs> and the Norwich star strikers... Uh, Finnish nation hanging on them. So uh, any predictions for the whole thing? You're right to mention Timu Puki. Obviously, I'm speaking from a with my yellow and green tinted glasses on. But, you know, yeah. Finland are at their first European finals. Timu Puki has been in fantastic form for his country. So, you know, you wouldn't bet against him scoring a few goals. Whether they'll get out of the group is a different question, of course. But I expect them to have a good time while they're there. But, I mean, I think it's a great tournament to be an England fan, really. I think you've got to say that I'm not saying we're going to go all the way, but... I think England, you'd expect to go quite deep in this tournament with the squad they've got, a good amount of depth. That's not not, not that we're exactly dark horses, because I think we're favourites of the bookies at the moment, but that, to me, reeks of um, biased English fans betting on their own team rather than any actual um, statistical chance that we'll, that we'll win it. There's, there's always potential for dark horses. I mean, Turkey looked like they recently put four past the Netherlands and they look like they um, have something about them. Um, I mean, France... The objective observers of favourites are France. They've got an embarrassment of riches in terms of their team um, and they are the world champions. So they they know how to play a tournament and uh, Didier Deschamps seems to be able to get the best out of players and like persuade people like Pogba to play in a very disciplined way in, in a big tournament. So the only mark against them is they're in the group of death with Germany and Portugal and somebody big is going to go out of the tournament from that, well, unless they get through as a third place. Yeah, so I think that they are rightly favourites. In terms of the home nations, I really, really hope Scotland can get out of that group with it, with England. I think that will be fantastic for them to get out into the knockout stages for the first time. That's not an easy group, though, because if you were going to have a smaller nation in England's group, probably the last one you'd want is Scotland, who have got extra motivation to play well and Croatia are no mugs so uh, being the World World Cup finalists uh, last time around so I don't think that's that's a straightforward group for England to get out of either so I think it's it's anybody's tournament anybody who says that they know who's um, who's going to win I've got three words for you Czechoslovakia Denmark and Greece because whereas the World Cup usually goes with one of the really top nations and only really France has joined that club in the past few decades really the Euros is much more open and um, so I'm looking forward to seeing who emerges as the dark horse last time it was Wales I think yeah there's a number of potential candidates 
this time around, including Wales. I think Denmark in particular are looking really good this year. I think it, the, I think there's some smart money on Denmark. Um, I think they've, they've got a strong side. I think they could go they could go pretty deep as well. And also among the bigger nations, Italy have also glided under the radar a little bit, having um, despite having put together a really strong side, fantastic offensively, a good balance of older seasoned players and younger um, attacking talents. So I think Italy are also another country who could who could go very deep and possibly go all the way. Yeah, I was going to say Italy as well, actually. There's, I, I think they're nine to one or something and, and you know, England are five to one, but Italy have got experience and know-how and a very, very good defence. And, and uh, you know, you, they're, they're not quite such a difficult group as, as uh, you know, the, the France, Germany, Portugal group, which is, is, is quite difficult. Although, as Rob says, such is the nature of the tournament that three teams can, uh, uh, in most of the groups, get out. So there's not actually very many teams that disappear after the end of the first round uh, which I think is not such an attractive feature of the way that these tournaments are organised these days. In the Scotland group I I thought it was Czech Republic, they were a small team Rob, not Scotland Um, (laughs) uh, uh, there you go Um, uh, yeah it's a a difficult group I mean Scotland did beat Czech Republic a couple of times so uh, they might uh, pick up points there Croatia I think are you know difficult team because they're they're always quite good and kind of got again another team with a bit of know-how as to how to get out of groups and and to progress in in tournaments but I I kind of hope that Scotland can can get through it and and um, I think Steve Clark's a very savvy manager I think we're not bad against uh, countries that um you know, are, are, are quite good. We seem to be able to, to get some decent results against uh, some of the, the, the bigger countries. So hopefully they might progress. Uh, I'm uh, keeping an eye on Turkey because I've got them in the, in, a, in the office sweepy, along with North Macedonia, who are obviously going to do very well and who I also got in the sweepy. Um, uh, interesting that I was out the office at the time this was drawn. Dispersions <laughs> <laughs> on... The- draw or anything but uh there you go um uh so yeah uh it's 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 kind of set up and i think obviously uh as with any tournament it's partly about the younger players that are coming through and who might do well there and to to kind of go to scotland there's a lot of excitement up here about billy gilmore the the young chelsea player who has just come in and 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 got his first sort of couple of caps in the last few weeks and whether he's going to get a game and he from what you know, I haven't seen a great deal of him but he looks a really uh, you know pretty good prospect for being a good player at some point so if someone like him could get a game and just kick that team on a little bit because they've got very good uh players and defensively Andy Robertson and Kieran Tierney get uh so um, hopefully they can do well. This is why the Euros are so great, though, because it's we've talked about all these teams that could that could do very well. And nobody's even mentioned Belgium yet. You know, a side who have been thought of before almost every tournament in recent memory as being one of the teams that should be there or thereabouts. And um, Lukaku up top just cannot stop scoring goals at the international level. So he's a possible golden boot contender, I think. But it's just great that there are so many sides that could feasibly win it. Yeah, it's very open. It reminds me of before 2000. Well, Rob made this point really, but before 2004, I remember thinking, I've got no idea who's going to win this one. It's wide open. And usually there's somebody who's a favourite. And obviously in 2004, Greece won. Like, And now I know my friends I know in Greece, they don't even bother qualifying. They just watch videos of... 2004 <laughs> and uh, uh and it was like obviously the nation's great nation's great moment but 
that that one, it just needed a team with a manager with now some good defence, and there was no really exception that no team played well enough to beat them, and and that's what happened. And you sort of feel it's a bit like that, but you also feel that if France or Belgium or maybe Italy play to their strength, you know which France will turn up or whatever, then they they could win. So it is very wide open and football wise. It should be a very exciting tournament for all the reasons people have said that it's very wide open. There's some very good players, you know, and there's, there's been some, despite everything else over the past year, there's been some very good skills, uh, quality football played. So there's plenty to look forward to, and hopefully we'll come back to it in future podcasts and see how things are see how things are progressing. But for now, I'd like to thank all the panelists for today. Uh, everything begins on Friday. Um, and so have a good Euro 2020, everybody. <laughs>